0: Now, many of you will know that our son William is a competitive swimmer. Now, I swam because I had to for water polo, whereas he swims because he actually loves to. And we just got back uh, yesterday afternoon from Junior Nationals in Irvine, his last meet as a high school athlete, so to speak. And given the kind of meet it is, there are coaches from all the great teams, right, from Cal, from Indiana, from Louisville, Arizona State, where the coaches, Bob Bowman, who used to coach Phelps, right, they're all there, as well as Notre Dame. And it was at that same meet, this time last year, that William first met the coaches there at Notre Dame. They were newly minted coaches. They were eager for success as a swim program, and that led to, uh, those conversations led to a recruiting visit, and that led to a phone call um that we had with the coaches and in that call uh those coaches shared that they'd love for william to come swim at the university of notre dame and aaron and i were elated right we had never expected those summer meets when the kids are small right where there's sunburns and tears and lost goggles and tiny crowded pools you parents know what i'm talking about we never expected that would lead to this and i think william was in shock and the coaches were laughing they were happy And then all that laughter died, and there was a long pause, and there was a pronounced silence, and the coach uttered these solemn words. He said, remember, William, you're a fighting Irishman now. Okay, I'm still trying to get my head around that part, but just, (laughs) there it is, right? You're a fighting Irishman now. You represent the University of Notre Dame everywhere you go right, how you behave, what you post online, it all reflects back on this institution. So represent us well, William. Now, at that moment, my wife and I and William, we just sort of stared at each other, and we felt the weight of his words, right? We said nothing, and we just let that weight settle, Notre Dame expects its athletes will relate to the world in such a way that they will bring glory and honor to the institution and not shame and disgrace. And friends, if that's true of collegiate swimming, how much more should that be true of us as Christians who represent the king of all kings? And it begs the question, how are representatives of Jesus, how are we to relate to the world? What does he expect of us? How do we bring him glory? How do we bring him honor? How do we not bring him shame and disgrace? All right, that brings us back to our study this morning in Paul's letter, uh, the letter of Titus, so we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. So let me encourage you to open your Bibles and turn there, Titus 3, 1 to 11. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we provide them in the seatbacks before you. And just know that if you're new to a Bible, uh, when I say chapter 3, that's the big bold number on the page. And when I refer to a particular verse, that's the small superscript number. Now, if you're just joining us, we're coming this morning toward the end of the letter. And it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young Protege Titus, and he was stationed there on the island of Crete. And it seems that these Cretan churches were overrun with teachers who didn't teach the Bible rightly, nor did they themselves live rightly, which is why Titus says, or Paul says to Titus, that he must install or help to install sound. Elders with sound doctrine because right right living isn't possible without right teaching. And over and over again, we've seen in Titus this inseparable connection between belief and between that and behavior, right? Dogma and deed, creed, confession, character, all that stuff right we've seen that in the conduct and paul in the book is actually working out in concentric circles so chapter 1 begins very very narrowly titus is dealing just with church leaders recognizing again that behavior in the pew won't change without right belief in the pulpit right it begins with leadership but then he sort of steps out and goes one circle further one circle more outside. And he expands how right living is to look within the congregation, right? Men and women, old and young, masters and bond servants. And now here in chapter 3, expand even one circle out further and reflect on how should the Christian conduct himself in the world? How do representatives of Jesus relate to the world? How do they rep him well? All right, let's listen. Titus 3 Verses 1 through 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now we're going to stop there, and if 3, one to 11 sounds at all familiar, it's because it basically follows the same flow of thought as chapter 2. But whereas chapter 2 really dealt with the life of the Christian within the congregation, right, chapter 3 deals really with the life of the Christian in the midst of the world. And notice both of them start with imperatives about how these Christians are to live, and then those imperatives are grounded in these indicatives of God, as how God has loved them. And so Paul, I think, is helping us see our relationship between the world and what that relationship to the world has to do with our relationship to God. And I think you could just perhaps summarize the passage like this. How we treat the world reveals how we believe God has treated us. So how we treat the world reveals how we believe God has treated us. Now, how did I arrive there? Well, let's just again follow the the flow of Paul's argument for a moment. Now, the ESV puts the entire passage into one big paragraph, which makes it perhaps a little harder to follow some of the the logical uh, movements of the text. The NIV actually breaks it up at at verse 2 in between 2 and 3, and then in between verses 8 and 9. And I actually think that's a pretty helpful breakdown. Because in verses 1 and 2, Paul raises the question, really, how are Christians to relate to the world? And then he lists the ways in verses 1 and 2. They're to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, etc. And why are Christians to live this particular way as outlined in 1 and 2? Well, it, we're given the reason right there at the beginning of verse 3. You see that four, right? Four. There's, there's the reason of why we're to live this particular way. Because we're to live this way because Paul says of how God has treated us. And verses really four to seven are a beautiful summary of how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, how they have all worked together in saving us. And then in verse nine, it feels like Paul sort of takes a hard turn left, and he starts talking about the one who stirs up division. And we might think those commands are sort of coming out of left field, but actually as we work through the text, we're going to see Paul's actually just following the, the natural flow of the letter. So notice there are four commands in 3, one to 11. The command to remind them of particular things, and then he returns to that in 3.8, that they're to insist on these things. And there are also 3.9 to avoid foolish controversies. And in 3.10, they're to have nothing more to do, in this case, with these divisive persons. And sandwiched between all these imperatives of what we're to do, again, is the indicative of what God has done for us. Everything in verses 4 to 7, he saved us. That is the main line of verses 4 to 7. He saved us, and everything else is just a description of how and why and in what manner God did the saving. So to break down the text, I just want us to ask three simple questions. First, how should we treat the world? Second, how has God treated us? And third... How do we treat those in the church who live like they're in the world? All right? So we, we've said that how we treat the world reveals something about how we believe God has treated us. And so just with that main idea in mind, again, we're going to think about it this way. How should we treat the world? How has God treated us? And then thirdly, how do we treat those in the church who live like they're in the world? And if you didn't get all that, I'll just repeat it as we work through. Okay, so how should we treat the world? How as Christians do we treat the world? Again, that's exactly what Paul addresses in verses 1 and 2. And it's good to recognize as Christians, there are actually vastly different answers um, in various Christian circles as to how you answer that question. So some say the best way to relate to the world is actually to retreat from the world. It's to withdraw from it. So if you know the influential sort of Roman Catholic commentator who's turned Greek Orthodox uh, Rod Dreher, he, he argues that Christians are best to withdraw from the secular world sort of into our own sacred spaces. That's his argument. Written a famous book about it. Others say, no, we're not to withdraw from the world. We're actually not to retreat, but we're to go out and we're to defeat the world. Right? We're to conquer the world, whether it's in media or in the academy or on Capitol Hill. We're to stand up and fight to do battle with the world. We're to overcome it. And some would make that argument, and that could be everyone from sort of more perhaps traditional, a god and country, conservatives, to even more fringe groups perhaps like the Proud Boys. And then there are lots of Christians who basically just go along with the world. So retreating, that's isolatory. Fighting, I mean, that's hard, that's costly. So what do they do? They just, honestly, they go with the flow. They treat the world as if it's largely just a friend to Christianity. So what should the Christian's response? What's a good biblical response? Because notice, Paul doesn't say we exactly to flee or to fight. He doesn't say we're to just retreat. He doesn't also use words that you were to go defeat, right? He doesn't do that. He says, verse 1, remind them. That's how he opens, remind them. And isn't that Interesting. You know, that suggests these Cretan Christians knew how they were supposed to behave in the world. What did they need? They needed a gentle nudge, right? They needed a reminder. Now, as Christians, we often love what's new and what's novel, right? Flashy things tend to grab our attention, and they tend to become fads in the church, but you know, so much of the Christian life is in fact not about discovering what's new and novel, but instead returning to those things that are tried and true. It's easy, if we don't do that, it's easy to drift. It's easy to drift slowly, even imperceptibly. So this week I was reading about a man in, in New York who went out in the morning for a, for a nice little swim sort of waded out into the water, was floating on his back, just letting the cool water, right, in the midst of a hot day wash over him. And then he came to his senses and realized, oh my word, I'm I'm drifting far from shore. And then five hours later, he was two and a half miles from shore. And he was out and he assumed he was a goner, right? He had drifted. And it seemed slow at first. It was imperceptible. But those cultural currents as Christians can take us far out to sea. Now, if I'm telling you story, the story, the guy actually very thoughtfully found some kind of floating rod, tied some piece of clothing to it, waved it, a passing ship, happened to see it, he was saved, right? Great, okay. But as Christians, those cultural waters right that drift that current can pull us and we need regular reminders like Paul's telling Titus to give to these Cretan Christians so every morning when we wake and we don't instinctively reach for the phone but right we grab our bibles we're giving ourselves reminders of those things that are tried and true not novel and new but tried and true that we desperately need every week we gather with another believer Right, And we share about our lives and we pray together and invest in one another. We're giving one another reminders. Every Sunday like this, when we gather with God's people and we gather under his word, we're reminding ourselves of those old tried and true things. Friends, don't underestimate the power of regular reminders and build them into the rhythms of your own Christian life lest you too drift. And what are they exactly to be reminded of? Well, he says to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So seven different ways Paul lists that Christians are to behave toward the world, beginning with, again, being submissive to rulers and authorities, being obedient. So this call to submit ourselves to rulers and authorities that's just a refrain throughout the bible so jesus in matthew 22 what does he say give back to caesar what is caesar's right and render unto god what is god's or paul in romans 13 1 says everyone must submit to governing authorities for there is no authority except from god and those that exist are instituted by god peter also says in first peter 2 that we're to submit to every human authority why he says well because of the lord and keep in mind, Paul's saying that they are to submit to the same totalitarian government that killed Jesus. That's not a small ask. That's a big ask Paul is making of these Christians. But that's because Christians, we're not anarchists, we're not rebels, we don't burn down government buildings to make a statement, we don't storm capitals by force when our own candidate doesn't win. We do not subvert the government or disobey the government unless it brings us into direct disobedience with the commands of Scripture. You can think of Acts 5.29 for that. So whether it's parents or police, whether it's you know, teachers or TSA workers, obeying authorities, I recognize that's not cool, but it is Christian. It's how Christians are to live. And Paul says we're to be ready. Right? To be poised for every good work. And we're seeing, again, this recurring theme of good works in Titus. Right? Verse 1, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we see a, re- a reference to good works, or to works, I guess, in general. In chapter 3, verse 5, he returns to good works in three eight. And part of what Paul's getting at is sort of like a, like a linebacker who's trying to read the quarterback and anticipate the play. Right? We're to be ready, we're to be poised, we're to be in position To do good works. And verse 2 may explain exactly the kind of works Paul has in mind, right? Negatively, he says, don't speak evil of of anybody and, and avoid quarreling. And then positively, he says, be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. And we can run right over that. But just think about that command for a moment. To speak evil or to speak ill of no one. I wonder if you can say that. Because recognize, again, Paul's not talking just about your close Christian friends or your own Christian community at church. He's talking about anybody, including governing authorities. And he's saying we should never speak in any way such as to demean or to denigrate one. So friends, that could be Gavin Newsom, right? That could be Ron DeSantis, Just because we disagree with them, even if we're really confident we're right and very confident they're clearly wrong, that still doesn't give us the right to speak ill of them, to speak disparagingly of them. Instead, what does Paul say? He says we're to be gentle and we're to literally show all courtesy toward all people. So there's weight and there's emphasis of how the Christianists behave toward the world. And it's interesting because that word for gentle and that other word for courtesy, it's actually used of Paul to describe Christ in 2 Corinthians 10. 1. I think part of what Paul's saying is that to these Cretan Christians is that they are to treat people the way Jesus treated people. That's what he's getting at when he speaks of being gentle and and showing all courtesy to all people. They're to treat people the way Jesus himself treated people. And how did he do that? Well, when it came to unbelievers, Jesus was always kind. His harshest words, honestly, were for sort of hypocrites within the community. But when it came to unbelievers, he didn't speak poorly of them. Even his own executioners, even when he had every right to. He was kind, and he was never cowardly. Right? He was gentle without ever being weak. I wonder if you're a Christian, if that describes your posture toward the world. Kind without being cowardly, gentle without being weak. Does that describe how you talk about opponents on the other side of the political aisle? Or does that describe how you talk about those on the opposite side, maybe of the gender wars? Or even those maybe on the opposite side of your own office? that you're in in some kind of disagreement with or maybe just on the other side of your dorm room or in your own home Christians are to treat the world respectfully and obediently and humbly and courteously and imagine how different our own witness might look if we learn to treat people this way the way Jesus did he's saying that's how we're to treat the world but that turns us secondly to how has God treated us? How has God treated us? And here we're thinking about verses 3 to 8. Verses 3 to 8, There are really two movements. He says, first in verse 3, he's going he's to remind them of, of, of who he used to be, really who we used to be. And then there's verses 4 to 8, you see that but there at the beginning of verse 4. So there's the strong contrast the, the story turns to verse 4. And so verse 3, consider who you were really without God. Verse 4, consider what God has done without you. That's really it. Verse 3, consider what, God, uh, what, what you were sort of without God. And then in verses 4 to 8, consider what God has done without you. And who were we without God? Well, he tells us, verse 3, he says, we were once. And notice just right there the change of pronouns. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul was saying, remind them. And then when we get to verse 3, he he changes and he says, now he jumps, he kind of inserts himself into the verse Paul does. He joins them and says, we. It's interesting, whenever Paul reflects on conversion, whenever Paul reflects on the heart of the gospel, he speaks in the first person. He speaks we. We. Whenever he reflects on conversion, he can't help, it seems, but think about his own conversion. And I love that. And honestly, I'm challenged by that. Because how often am I talking about conversion? And maybe I'm talking about it sort of coolly and coldly, almost in a calculated manner, as if I myself have not been a recipient of this great grace. That's a temptation for all of us. But I love how Paul, he never speaks when it comes to salvation. He doesn't speak coolly and casually. He doesn't speak disinterestedly, but no, it's, he speaks personally, right? He puts himself in the text, we, and he does so passionately and friends, it should be no different with us. No different when it comes to the gospel. If we can speak rather blithely and indifferently to our own salvation, if we just treat it like any other event on any other day, either we haven't experienced salvation or we've begun to clearly lose the wonder of it. And both of those are dangerous. And notice how the, bad, the gospel rather, is bad news before it becomes good news. Because he says, we were once what? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. He's saying to these Cretan Christians, you should live and treat the world in a respectful, humble, courteous way. He says, why? Because you were just like them. He's saying, you were no different. Which means as Christians, we never have warrant to act sort of in a kind of smug or superior way. Because when we do that, when we respond in a sort of smug and superior way, we're basically saying, look, I know I'm not like you. Right? I'm better than you. I'm in a different category than you. And we sort of establish and erect our own moral high horse. And then some of them we erect very, these are big horses. And we climb on top of that horse. And we get on top and we speak down to to the world about us. And God has a way of taking out that horse. And reminding us that we ourselves are no different. Because verse 3 is really a haunting picture of life without God. Foolish doesn't mean, you know, just sort of silly, like, oh, that foolish child. No, foolish in the Old Testament is how the Bible speaks of one who does not recognize God. Who does not weigh God in his daily life. He says we were disobedient means what? We rejected God's rule, right? We made up our own rules to live as we wanted. We were led astray as, and we were deceived, and enslaved, he says, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Nobody in the world thinks that sin is slavery. We think sin is what? We think it's freedom, right? It's the ability to throw off all constraints. But the Bible says sin is slavery. Every time we choose sin, we're giving into our own hearts and inclinations and letting our hearts lead us where they want to go. When we choose sin, when we walk in the path of sin, we're like a dog on a leash, right? And that leash is drawing us along and that leash is our heart. And we think, you know what, our hearts are okay, so that's an okay thing. But God says, ah, actually, not so much. He says, you lived in malice and envy. You were hated by others and hating one another. So malice is wishing bad things would happen to people, and envy is wishing good things had not happened to people. And that describes so often our own hearts. Because we resent people who have things that we want or we think we deserve. And we end up, what, hating them in our hearts. And that is, all of this is a pitiful picture. But Paul's really setting us up. Because we'll never be able to grasp the heights of God's heart for us until we plumb the depths of our own. So Paul reminds them of what? Of actually seven things they're to do today by reminding them of a corresponding seven things that they used to be, right? Verse three, yesterday. You know, and that, it's interesting. I was just reflecting the number seven. It's, it reflects completeness or wholeness in the Bible. And perhaps Paul's getting at how we're to live holy, righteous lives because we used to live holy, wicked lives. Paul's painting here, I think, a picture of our whole, complete, and utter depravity. Because, friends, it's only in the recognition of sin that comes the beginning of salvation. And this malice and envy and hatred, Paul's saying, What? That's who we used to be. He's saying, What? Once we were like this. And, of course, once implies what? Well, that they are no more once implies that these Cretan these Christians have undergone some radical kind of change. Paul is helping us see nobody is just born a Christian. We're not born Christians. Your, your parents, I recognize, they may have given you your brown eyes, or they may have given you their, your blonde hair, or maybe they gave you your quirky smile. right? You inherited that from them. But friend, you can't inherit Christianity. It's not passed down in our own DNA. Rather, a radical change has to take place. You know, this passage, in this sense, is pretty similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul refers to the sexually immoral and those who commit adultery, those who practice homosexuality. He refers to thieves and the greedy and the drunkards. And what does he say in 1 Corinthians 6.11? He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, right? A radical change had taken place. We were crooked and needed to be straightened. I wonder if you've ever tried to straighten something that's crooked. Say you got a hanger in your closet, right? This has happened to me I don't know how many times. I always put something too heavy on a hanger, like a heavy jacket, right? The hanger bends. And so I go and I try to straighten it. And What happens when I try to straighten that bent hanger? Sure, like maybe I lessen the bend a little bit, but I can never seem to get the bend all the way out. And in the process of trying to fix the little bend, what do I do? I just create more bends on either side. I just create a bigger problem. And friends, that is a picture of what it looks like when we try to straighten ourselves. So sure, maybe in our own lives, maybe we can make some mild improvements. But friends, we can't fully fix ourselves, not from the insides out, And in the process even of trying to fix ourselves, usually we just create another bend in the hanger, so to speak, right? We are born crooked, and we can't straighten ourselves. And friends, that's not what we're told, not out in the world. No, we're told what? We're told to look inward. We're told to explore ourselves, to find the answer, because it resides within ourselves. We are basically told to straighten ourselves, But the Bible says, forget that, you've got to look outside yourself. Don't look in here, you've got to look outside. If you are to be saved, someone else has to do it for you. And that's what Paul's setting up in verses four to eight. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy. And he goes on. Really, four to eight function as a kind of mini creed. Maybe something that would have been recited at the time of baptism. And at the center of that creed is that expression, he saved us. Again, everything else just modifies that. He saved us. And friends, many are embarrassed by this fact, right? They want to make Christianity about ethics or they want to make Christianity about self-improvement But Christianity is fundamentally a religion of salvation. And you'll never understand it until you get that point. You know, in the the words of Bob Dylan, he says, It doesn't matter how much money you got. There's only two kinds of people. There's saved people and there's lost people. Bob Dylan got it right. Because that's what the Bible's about. The Bible is a message of salvation. The Bible is one word about one God and about the one way of salvation through one Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Bible. So it's worth stopping for a moment and just asking yourself how you would complete this sentence. God accepts me because... Dot, dot, dot. Right? How would you fill in that blank? God accepts me because... You know, when we we think about relationships, or maybe we think about a big decision, what do we tend to do? We tend to create a pros and cons list when we have such decisions. So maybe we draft up a list of reasons of why we think it would be good for us to stay in this relationship, or maybe why we think it would be good or bad for us to take this job offer. And when it comes to our relationship with God, you might be tempted to think God does the same thing. Maybe he weighs our good against our bad, and he's got his pros and cons list when it comes to us, and then he decides on that basis what he's going to do. But friends, if God was going to have his own pros and cons list in deciding to save us, just imagine what that list would like. Right on the con side, what do we got? We've got foolish. We got disobedient. We got deceived, we've got enslaved, we've got living in malice and envy, hated and being hated. Right? That list is getting pretty long, and we just get the impression Paul's only starting in verse 3. And so the cons list, perfectly long. What's on the pros side? What does the verse say? Why was God so inclined toward us? There's nothing on that side. There are no pros. Nothing in us that commended ourselves to God. No reasons, not one, about why God should save us. There is nothing there, and that is not an accident. It's because you have nothing to bring to God. Nothing whatsoever. None of us do. God did not look at us and say, hey, you know what? On balance, you know, Brad's not too bad. He's kind of impressive, actually. God's not saying that about me. Or he didn't look at you and say, you know what? You know, upon closer inspection, you know, I see a lot of potential in her. I, I see a lot of good in her. That's not what God says. All he sees is envy, hatred, rebellion, a thousand reasons to condemn us forever. And the closer he looks, the worse it gets. Which is why he had to save us he had to do it otherwise it could not have happened and friends if he saved us it means we do not save ourselves we cannot save ourselves salvation is holy of grace god is holy the subject we are holy the objects of it for the only reason we're given as to why god saved us is because of what because of god Because of his character, because of who he is. Paul speaks in verse 4 of what? Of the goodness and the loving kindness of God. Just, I don't know how you think about God as you came in this morning. But do you use words like that? Like goodness? Like loving kindness? You know, maybe God feels distant to you. Maybe God seems a little harsh. Maybe even high-handed toward you. Maybe you feel like God just tolerates you. But that is not how God in Christ thinks of you. Not according to our text. And just consider for a moment the knowledge that God knows everything about me and even knowing everything about me, he still loves me. Is that not the greatest consolation we could have for our souls? Is there any better consolation than that? If he knows everything about me and still chose to save me, will he ever abandon me? Will he ever forsake me? Of course not. For that goodness and kindness comes in a person, in Jesus Christ. When he appeared, we read, God saves us. And just to drive the point home, he says, again, he saved us. And lest you be misled or deceived, he did not save us because of what we had done. No righteous works on our behalf but according to his own mercy. That's it. That's our plea. Mercy alone. You know, if you can do something to lose your salvation, it means you've done something to earn it. But he's helping us see salvation isn't gained by us. Salvation is a gift to us. How, verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. God had to make us new. He had to regenerate us. He had to give us new hearts. You know, that's what Kendall read earlier from Ezekiel 36, this promise that God would wash and cleanse his people and then replace their hearts of stone, and he would give them hearts of flesh that would follow him in his word. And notice in all of this how Paul's presenting all three members of the Trinity gloriously working together in salvation. So the Father is the, the architect of salvation, the Son is the agent, the, the Holy Spirit is the instrument of it. And the result, verse 7, we are justified. And in justification, right, Jesus gets what we deserve, which is condemnation and death for our sin. Jesus gets what we deserve. And in return, we get what Jesus deserves, which is righteousness and eternal life. That's the joy of justification. And friends, that right there is just the heart of the good news of Christianity. The gospel, right? The good news of Christianity is not God saying, you know what? I've gone all this way for you. I've done all this for you, and now it's just left to you to go a little bit further. You finish off the work. That's not the good news of the gospel, The gospel says, I've done it all for you, period, that's it. Nothing left for you to do. It's not a reward, it is a gift. So yeah, you can say we're saved by works, just not our own works. We're saved by Christ's works and his works alone. So if you've come this morning trusting that maybe God would accept you because You know, when push comes to shove, you're better at least than most people, or maybe not most people, but maybe at least some people, or maybe at least those people you read about on the news, right? You're thinking, maybe I just, I'm not the very bottom of the barrel. Or because maybe, you know, God just sees some benevolent spark in you, and on that basis, he's going to save you. Well, friends, that's not how God works. All of that is vanity. God alone saves sinners through the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that's it and that's where we go as Christians it's not our good life that saves us it's Christ it's not even our hold upon Christ that saves us it's Christ it's not even our joy in Christ that saves us it's Christ it's not even our faith in Christ the faith is an instrument It is Christ's blood and merit that saves us. His life, death, and resurrection alone saves. Nothing to add to it, which means nothing we can do to lose it. And it comes with what? The promise of eternal life. You see, traditional religion says, I'm going to work and give to God a good moral record so that God has to bless me. That's what all, just about every religion says in one form or another. But the gospel says that God gives me, he gives to me a good moral record in Christ. And so I want to bless him. It's not I do this so that God blesses me. It's I've been given this so I can bless God. Religion says if I obey, then God will love me and accept me. The gospel says, nope, God loves me and accepts me, therefore I want to obey. It's the greatest motivation for obedience. So if you have never trusted in Christ, if you're still holding in some way weakly to this notion that you have something that will merit you before God, just abandon that, let go, grasp hold of Christ. He is a loving Savior, and he never fails his people, and he never lets go. And trusting in Him looks like repenting from your sins and believing and giving up to Him your entire life. And if you have not done that, I plead with you to do that. God alone saves. You cannot save yourself. And these are the things, verse 8, that we what must insist on. Every day, what do we do? Go back to the gospel. Every day, what do we to do? Lean deeper back into grace. Why? Well, He says... So that those who have believed in God may be what? Careful to devote themselves to good works. And right there, that reference to good works circles us all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1. Right? We've not just been saved from something. We've actually been saved for something. Right? For good works. So our own efforts don't earn us salvation, but they are the necessary expression of our salvation. Because the new birth always evidences itself in new life. But you know, what about those within the church who seem to have strayed from the gospel? Well, that brings us to our third and final question. How do we treat those in the church who live like they're in the world? Right, that's the sort of third and last question. And this is the shortest by far the point, so don't fret. Right, how do we treat those in the church who live like they're in the world. How should we think about them? That's verses 9 to 11. And again, this might first appear like an odd tangent, like Paul's just taking, again, a hard left. Where is he going now? Well, there's a kind of symmetry, notice, to the letter. Remember the letter opened chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, with a warning against false teachers and false works. And then in chapter 2, Paul moves to talk about the kind of good works meant to be done among believers in chapter 2, 1 to 10. And that's grounded in God's work, 2, 11 to 14. And then in chapter 3, he turns to the good works were to do towards outsiders in 3, 1 to 2. And notice how that too is also grounded in God's work, 3, 1 to 8. And now here he is returning full circle to where he opened back in chapter 1 giving a final warning against false teachers and their false works, 3, 9 to 11. So if Dr. Hamilton were to be here with us, he'd say Titus is a what? A chiasm. Yeah, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. You can ask me at the door. Yeah, it's a chiasm. So how do we treat those in the church who live like they're in the world, stirring up divisions, teaching falsely, living falsely? What does Paul do? He outlines a three-step process, warn them once, warn them twice, And if he doesn't repent, there's no change. He says, have nothing more to do with them, which I think is better translated as it is elsewhere, dismiss them or even drive them out. It's a very active kind of verb. I think Paul's referencing in verses 9 to 11, just to cut to the chase, I think Paul's referencing church discipline because the process he describes, though it's very shorthand, is very similar to what Jesus describes in Matthew 18 or what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 5, where if you have one who's in serious and demonstrable and unrepentant sin, right, we're not talking about minor things. These are more major things. That serious, demonstrable, and unrepentant sin, what is the congregation to do? They're to exclude them from the Lord's Supper, which is to say exclude them from membership. Withdraw the name of Christ from them, which Christ has given to churches to grant. Friends, that's sadly the very thing we as a congregation had to think about this past Sunday night. And why are they to do that? Well, knowing verse 11, that knowing is causal because you could translate it because you know such a person who lives this way in such unrepentant sin, he's saying they're warped, right? They're twisted, right? Inside out by their actions, Paul says they are self condemned. Now, I recognize such an action could be construed as what? As unloving, as unkind even as cruel and judgmental. And you know what? It wouldn't have been construed that much differently in Paul's day either. And maybe you're tempted to think similarly about this topic of church discipline, but I'm reminded of the words of, of a 20th century sort of pastor and theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he says, Nothing can be more cruel than that leniency which abandons others to sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian back from the path of sin. And friends, right, right there is the goal of church discipline. It's not punitive, it's restorative, it's to win back the wandering saint. Alright, so to bring things to a close. We flew back, as I said, from Irvine yesterday. Right? Flew back yesterday afternoon. Traveling through airports, walking on planes. William was sporting all now, all of his college swag, right? No more aqua hogs, right? Here up here in Springdale. Now it's Notre Dame. He's no longer a high school swimmer. He represents Notre Dame. And with that, as that coach made clear, comes a particular responsibility to rep the institution well in the world. And friends, I think Paul's helping us see as Christians, it is no different. If you are in Christ, you have been chosen to represent someone. And that person matters immeasurably more than any university. For how we treat the world reveals something about how we believe that God has treated us. So do we live respectfully and humbly and courteously toward the world without capitulating on the truth of God's word? Do we live that way? Do we seek to be ready for every good work and live lives that are devoted to good works because of God's prior good work in us? And will we as a congregation even be willing to do the uncomfortable thing, even the unpopular thing, and and when necessary, sort of remove that Team Jesus jersey from one who chooses to walk with the world and not walk with Christ? Because we all represent something. We all represent someone. So friend, what will your life and what will ours as a congregation, what will it have to say about us? Let's pray.